Hello, NoCode Nation. I'm Ayush, and you're listening to my NoCode story. And this is not your typical entrepreneurship podcast. Here, you get to listen to real people who are building cool stuff, all without writing a single line of code. This is the future of independent entrepreneurship, and you have a front row seat. Before we get into today's episode, I have a request to make. I hope this podcast has helped you discover new stories, people, and frameworks. If you like what you hear, do me a favor and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. This will help the pod get discovered by more people, and it lets me know that we're on the right track. Now, onto the show. I've been sharing a lot more freelancer stories in recent weeks, and I hope you've been learning a ton from these diverse and unique journeys. Today, I talked to Michael Novotny, who recently quit his corporate job to become a full-time freelancer. He's been really transparent with his journey and how scary taking the leap actually is, but today he opens up even more. We talk about why quitting and figuring it out later is not a preferred strategy, why prioritization is the number one skill for freelancers, and the power of compounding your portfolio of no-code bets. I think you're going to enjoy this. Here's my conversation with Michael Novotny. Hey, I'm Michael, and this is my no-code story. Michael, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad that we can have this conversation finally. I really enjoyed watching your story starting earlier this year when you went public with what sort of bombshell news that you were quitting your corporate day job. And I was like, what's this guy doing? And I reached out and, you know, obviously congratulated you because you're in some ways living the dream, but it's a scary dream for a lot of people to switch from a dependable corporate job to going into the freelance world. So I'm excited to get into all things no code intersecting with freelance. Welcome to the show. Awesome, man. Thanks so much for having me. I love what you're doing in the space and telling, helping people tell the stories. And I do remember that day was, was, I never had a viral tweet, but I guess that might count as one. And I I do remember you reaching out and I'm so thankful for support and uh, encouragement, man. It means a lot, especially when you're going out on your own. Absolutely. And why don't we start before this day, which is, I think, in early January at this point of 2022. So tell me about what your life was like last year. Like what what was the role that you had in this corporate job and what piqued your interest in no code? Because you've been dabbling in the no code space for a while now, for a couple of years now. Is that right? That's right. Yep. So what was your corporate job like? And just walk me through a day in the life of what you would go through, working a nine to five job, and then when would you find time to work on no code stuff? What would you gravitate towards and so on? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a product manager for the PGA and did that for, was there for almost three years. And then I was a a product manager or product-like role for several, several years before that. And I got into product management through launching my own startup in 2016, but I failed. Got some revenue and some customers, but I had no idea what I was doing. And that's what kind of started my journey into product management. And then actually since then, I've been transfixed with understanding like, hey, I just, I don't just build it, people come. I need to figure out like, how do I actually, you know, build something in a leaner way? Actually, how do I build something iteratively and in in different way than just raising venture capital? And so I just became just transfixed with trying to figure out like how do you how do people do that 
And right at the same time, no code really started kind of like taking, but we didn't really call it no code back then. I don't, I don't, I'm trying to remember. I don't think we really called it no code to like 2018 or something like 2019, maybe, I don't know, maybe it was earlier, but, and so then when I first kind of started to get into it, I basically was just looking at Twitter and where all magical stuff happens. Right. And, um, I noticed that people were posting what they're building and what stack of tools they're using to make something without writing code. And I hate Twitter in the, in the, in the sense that it's, it's so, it's so um, you know, the, the life of a tweet is so short, right? So that this, as soon as you read it, it's gone. And then it's gone, seems like forever, like it might as well not have existed. And so I just started documenting what people were creating. And I put that on a site called Side Project Stack. Um, you can go to it. It's a free site. And, and it's kind of, kind of like my contribution to try to help because I selfishly, I wanted it for myself to learn how. And so I was like, hey, why don't I just share this? So it might be a helpful resource for other people. And then there's also some educational things. And so I was just doing that nights, uh, nights primarily uh, because it was fun. I had an interest in it. And that's what I think is so underrated. I think when you're starting out building or starting out doing something is like trying to find like uh, a good SaaS to do like, or something like that versus just scratching your niche or just having an interest in something because that's where you're going to spend hours and hours and time where it's not going to feel like a waste and it'll feel like an investment and you might enjoy doing it. And then that's where you're going to like fall into, okay, where are the edge cases that could turn into businesses? And so that's what I did with side project stack is I just, I just worked on it nights and weekends, my weekend evenings. And then I just started discovering different opportunities that could turn into monetization and one by one, try to validate, test them out. And then, and then kind of, you know, fast forward up to here was able to basically build up enough, a audience and following and, and validate a few things to be able to quit my job. So that's kind of like kind of, kind of real short, simple past few years of how I got into no code, if that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's dig into a little bit of that PGA tour experience though, because um, they're, they're moving here to the North Dallas area. Were you a product manager for their online business? So that's, that's a PGA of America. So okay. there's, yeah, yeah. So everyone, so unless different. you're in the business, yeah, the tour is different. So yeah. So unless you, cause I know you're from Texas. So yeah. I love Texas and I love Dallas. So PGA of America is a different organization than the PGA tour. PGA tour is think of it like the NBA or the NFL for the, for the, for the game. Got it, so got that's it. what PGA tour does. They're basically the league for golf, for professional mm -hmm. golf. And, and what, what were you a product manager of? Was it some of their, you know, online products or was yep. it some, something more physical? Yeah, it was all digital. So a digital product manager, I should have specified because there's a lot of different products they offer, right? So specifically digital. My products that I managed, they wove in and out of web and mobile app. I think probably the most recognizable one was based in the one that I'm really proud of. We had a um, over-the-top subscription service network that you could watch golf on. It was called PG Tour Live. And this provided additional golf coverage. We sold that through in our apps and, and web and with a, a partner like NBC or something like that. And now it's ESPN. And so we doubled the amount of subscriptions and people, folks who are absorbing that content. So I was primarily responsible for that, as well as other different types of sponsorships within the product, as well as just growing, you know, growing the experience within the, the web and the app. And so there were several of us because it's it's you know we have millions of users on the platform and so we all kind of had different chunks of the product got it got it and i think a lot of product managers are a really good fit for no code tech in general because they live and breathe figma and product designs and stuff like that and when they transition to using visual development tools or even just building a website on a no code 
platform, it comes naturally to them. Was that your experience as well as you were building side project stack? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that is, I think, you know, the first 10, 10, 20 years, and I think it was KP who talked about like the age of developers has been the past 20 years. I think now it's going to be the age of the marketer or the product manager, because now I don't have to go give handoff my specs to somebody to develop something. And there's there, as we know, that's, that's a challenge. It's why our jobs exist because it's, it's hard to communicate that. Now I can just go create it myself. Like that just, now all of a sudden I've just, you know, zoomed up the light in, in light speed, the experimentation, prototyping, you know, using, I use Figma a lot and Figma helped me kind of think through also from a visual development standpoint, those were kind of like the gateway tools, I think, into the harder, harder a bigger learning curve type of no code tools. And I think the product managers and marketers, I think it's, I strongly believe like if, if you have that skill level and then you can do, develop this visual development and then you can do a little bit of sales, like you're, you'll be unstoppable. It's, it's really exciting time. I think for, for those folks who have some experience in those skill sets, they can slide into this naturally if they've used Figma and things like that. Yeah, and Figma specifically, and I know a lot of product managers use uh, use Figma, but I, I really feel like we're at the infancy of the no-code movement in that you have to like viscerally translate those Figma designs into something that you then build, quote-unquote build, on on a no-code platform. I'm trying to find this um, this person that that built a product that basically ingested Figma designs and converted Makers. them. Makers.so, it's by John. Yeah, Makers.so. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I think there are a couple of these products that are coming up now that that take basically design documents or, or design yeah. files and then translate them into a version of an application or a website that you can then start to modify, which really, I mean, looking at the trajectory at which uh, these products are are getting not only smarter, but also more technologically sophisticated, I feel like, you know, there's so much more that we can enable uh, solution experts, product experts, business experts, and functional experts with to build on top of a tech stack, which, and, and that, again, like you said, reduces the gap between idea and actual product and validation in, in the market. Talk to me a little bit about those early days. Like, what was the first day like when you didn't have to get, wake up and log into work anymore? Yeah, it was freeing, but... That was very momentary because now, not panic. I think that's a strong word, but overwhelming. Of uh, this is a this is a whole new kind of world and a new journey, and I'm by myself. Okay, now I've got to figure out, you know, how am I going to generate income? And the analogy I've used a couple of times that I that actually I just randomly mentioned this, and somebody said, "Oh, that makes a lot of sense." Which is like before. I felt like a, like an animal in a zoo where I was in a protected area. I knew I was going to get fed at three o'clock every day. And, and I didn't really have to worry about any existential threats versus like, I'm now an animal out on the Serengeti in the wild and I have to go hunt to kill and, and kill, you know, food to eat. And my worry was, is do, do I have the muscles developed to be able to go, to go do that, to go be able to go go hunting and, and make my own kills to feed myself, you know, and I, you know, I, that, and, and so when that kind of kicked in, it's just extreme focus and just what do I got to do became paramount. So the, the feeling of freedom, I think was very, very momentary. What I'm hoping is, is that, and I just tweeted this out actually, was it today? Yeah, earlier today. I said about, I feel like 5% comfortable and it's six weeks post that day. And the reason is, is because like for the first time on Monday, I woke up and I felt a little bit of just familiarity, like, okay, this is, 
Now I'm getting in routine. This is what I need to do. And I need to think. And the hardest part is just you're by yourself. Like before I could, as long as I stayed busy working on something and I communicated it to my boss, it really didn't matter what I worked on because I was going to get a paycheck. But now if I work on the wrong things, you know, a month or two or three months from now, that might be a failure. Then I might not get income. And so like that could be somewhat paralyzing a little bit. And so then it, it, what I've had to do is just be much more disciplined on Okay, what are my objectives? Okay, here's the things that are feeding me today. And here are the small bets I want to place on these other things. I have to make be disciplined to make sure that my time allotment for those different segments are respected, right? So like the things that are feeding me today, I need to make sure I dedicate that time and I don't I don't steal from that to go work on the other things that I want to do. So being disciplined has is, is been a challenge. I, I so dig that analogy that that you gave about And being an uh, like an animal in the zoo versus an animal in the wild yeah. by yourself or maybe even an animal in a pack right and right. one of the advantages or disadvantages of having a young child at home is that you frequent the zoo quite a lot and on <laughs> yeah. one of these recent trips uh, to to the zoo out here we went at around 4 p.m. i think is the closing time so we went at around 2 and we stayed until it was almost closing time And I think that's about the time when they actually start feeding all the animals. And yeah. we were one of the last people in the zoo just moving around. And what we started to notice was in every single enclosure, and they obviously have a they have a route, right, where they go yep. and, and then they feed these animals. But in every single enclosure, the animals were getting so stressed. They were kind of, we saw like so many animals bang at the doors of where the food right. would drop in from. We saw like animals getting really, I mean, I don't know if you could call it violent, but really stressed about, whether or not the food that they expected would come in to a certain extent you know when you're depending on a steady income and you're expecting that monthly paycheck if something doesn't happen that first month you probably feel stressed right but when you're right. out in the wild and you get the confidence that you can kill to survive and and right. make it when you need to and especially if you start to then you know gain skills alongside that that will then help you it it really makes so much more of a difference and then it it kind of frees you up a little bit is at least my read of it yeah wow i really love that angle and you're so right like like it's what's interesting i in working for a corporate job you definitely felt that stress because you're in that controlled environment and you can't do things and you're kind of just subjected to whenever they feed you but you're still stressed like that animal is still stressed it's not like they have it's the easy life and i think so so many so many times people forget a lot of people as they're thinking about leaving they they're said okay i'm going to do something about this right but there's a lot of people who just kind of put up with that versus like when when you can get out in the wild and you realize oh i can i can run and i can i can i have the skills to be able to provide for my family and and do all these other things it's actually become so much more freeing but it just can be a little bit terrifying at the beginning because you don't have those wins under your belt and so for me what i had to do was i wanted to uh, validate things before i quit and so that's what gave me the confidence to be able to like do that so i tried to get those wins under my belt and when i started getting those wins i was like okay i could grow this i could and so it's not like figuring things out at the end so it was kind of i think that's so important in what could be so freeing with no code is that you could start testing the waters and you need to do that while as side as side, that's why I named it side project stack because you know you need you're going to do so many things wrong and no matter how how well I can educate you you just have to learn things yourself and 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 feel that pain of okay I built this nobody came so why you know like I did why not okay well actually you got to build you got to build an audience or you got to learn how to you know 
um, market it and do things. And one of my favorite things that favorite tweets out there is from Justin Kahn, who's the founder of Twitch. You know, he, he sold uh, Twitch to Amazon for almost a billion dollars. It's like 980 million. And I still can't believe it's not a billion. Like, why didn't they just, why didn't Bezos just give him 20 million more? But regardless, I don't think if I'm getting 980 million, I don't think I'm going to complain. And Justin Kahn tweeted about like, first time founders obsess over the product, second time founders obsess over distribution. And that was like, that's like, I was like, oh, when I read that, it was like a, a dagger to my heart because I felt that. And so I, th- you have to, so, so rather than like quit your job and like start a startup and try to get like millions of dollars of funding, why not launch small side projects and learn from how to actually build something and do that in the comfort of your nights and weekends, right? And you can do it quickly. And now you can with no code. One of my favorite things, a friend of mine, KP, that a lot of people know about building public stated, which was, he said like, hey, a lot of people get focused on starting a startup, which is like kind of a, like a massive building versus like when you're starting small, it, those startups, the successful ones started as like a campfire. So when you think about it through those lens, then you begin to think differently about your starting point, which is, oh, I can start a side project and learn what are the, how do I make something desirable for the first 100 people? You know, and a good example is like the bell curve of adoption, right? Like and many, some folks have heard of it, some haven't. If you're not familiar with it, basically you can segmentize the different groups of people of your customers and assign attributes to them of kind of like who they are and where they, who they were in their journey when they adopted your product. And a lot of people, when they, when I ask them like, Hey, what's the first segment of that bell curve of adoption of like, of the, like, say you get a million users, that first segment of the ones who are going to use your product, who are they going to be? And uh, a lot of people say early adopters, but that's incorrect. It's actually innovators. It's the first two and a half percent. And and that's when I made, you know, kind of made the, the jump into realizing like, hey, it's the folks who don't want a perfect product and they want something to see something kind of unfinished, actually, then it changes your whole mindset of like, it frees you up. It's, this doesn't need to be perfect to build something. I can do something that is unfinished. I can do something that is maybe just much smaller and it doesn't have to be a, a major startup. And I can do that with no code. And then it just frees you up. And it's just, it's a, it's a magical feeling. That's why I love what you're doing, you know, and what I try to do and, and why I try to, you know, engage with some people in no code is because the more I think we can get people to feel that, the more people could hopefully decide, hey, I want to go full time and make that jump. And, you know, that's such, so many great points there. Okay, KP was actually on the show. He was, I think I split the recording that we did into two parts. And so it's 24 and 25, if I'm not mistaken for those listening. Yeah. And one of the things that he said that really stuck with me was, hey, he made a series of like bold predictions is kind of how he called it on the show. Yeah. And one of these bold predictions was every aspect of an enterprise is going to be disrupted by no code over the next 10 years, right? So what he was thinking at that point was things like, you know, sales and marketing with marketing automation and email marketing automation and stuff like that. And and even, you know, CRM solutions and and that that whole aspect of sales and marketing we talked about product management and how that's ripe for disruption with no-code tech. I think we're, we're already there in terms of the product manager role, but right. even some of the back-end operations, right, in terms of, you know, generating code for mm-hmm. a particular idea and making sure that that code can then be compiled and run and, you know, do you do you then implement it using a, a serverless solution or a server-based solution, et cetera. All of these aspects are ripe for disruption. Generating mm-hmm. APIs is another aspect. And I think we don't really realize how vast the market basket is that 
that is on offer. And you don't have to be an expert in, at everything. You just need to find the, the niche that you serve and make sure that the products that you provide your users are not only high quality, but also solve their problems. And to your point about, you know, not being perfect in terms of not waiting until the product is perfect before launching it. I also had Rachit Kator, who's the CEO of Stackby on, on the pod, and his main regret was uh, he waited four months, an extra four months to launch the product because they were fixing bugs. Yep. That was four months then. That was when COVID hit, right? And immediately yeah. they, they saw a little bit of a, a pullback in terms of you know users and so on. And then mm. it picked up later once mm -hmm. it kind of became the norm and people got used to it. But really his regret was waiting those four months where he could have probably built the same types of features, fixed the same bugs in those same four months, but with a launch yes. product and then also getting feedback from his yes, customers. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. So t tell me a little bit about approach to becoming a freelancer, because mm -hmm. one of the things that I noticed was you've been very methodical, right? You've obviously worked on side project stack for a while, and you're using that as a platform to kind of propel yourself into the freelance world. But also when you started, it sounded like you already had a plan and you shared some of this publicly, but yeah. I want you to talk us through what that thought process was and what's the planning process. And maybe you could start with how many years you were in that corporate job, just to give people a flavor for the timeline. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually, a crazy kind of, my crazy kind of story is um, I tried to play golf professionally and, and I tried, and I was, a, I was a teacher teaching golf and went out and teach on my own. So I kind of like started off in this entrepreneurial journey and then I got into corporate because I didn't know what I wanted to do with life after I was getting out of that business because it was a strictly time for money-based type of pay. And so that was, golly, when was that? 2009, I think. Yeah. So it's 2009. And then it wasn't until like 2013, 2014, that I really like start to grab hold of and be fascinated with Airbnb and Uber. And the reason why is because I was like, wait a minute, these technologies basically opened up a ginormous opportunity because they allowed you to do something that I didn't think it was possible, which is get in a stranger's car and go to a stranger and live in, and stay at a stranger's house. And so, and then that I just kind of been transfixed from then. And so ever since then, I kind of had this, it was a spark of like, wow, I could, I could maybe create something. And so I've been in corporate since 2009. And so 13 years was my sentence. So I like to call it because it felt like a prison sentence for me. And I think that's important. It's not a derogatory perspective. That's just how I felt. Like school felt like prison for me. And I know it's not actual prison, but it just, I felt confined and I didn't feel like I was, it was not, I just wasn't happy and I was miserable, but I didn't know that I could like really do anything else. Then fast forward, I have three children and a wife and a family. So I couldn't just quit my job and go live on my, my buddy's couch, which I would love to do, but that's my, I don't think my kids, my wife would appreciate that. And so I tried to launch a startup in 2016 as a side project, which I, I definitely bit off more than I could chew. And, and then from there, I just tried to figure out, okay, well, like, how am I going to quit my job? Like when I took, you know, when I, when I was working in corporate, I was, since then, I was always thinking like, well, like, how could I eventually like go and do my own thing? And so what I figured out was, is like, hey, instead of trying to do like a big, crazy thing, why don't I just do several small things, see what works and see where I can get some revenue, where I can get some actual validation, and then decide when it reaches a certain level that I could possibly make the jump and save up my money. So 
the plan was, and it just so happened, like when, you know, I was able to, we were able to really be frugal and just save up. So I have enough income cash flow for this year for my family without having to earn a single dollar. And so that was kind of something that, you know, was important because I didn't want that pressure. Like it's, it's, I do wake up, you know, early in the morning, I get woken up and thinking about like, how am I going to be doing these things? And so the second, that was the first thing. The second thing was, okay, I've got side project stack and I began doing tests to see how am I possibly going to monetize this? And so I laid out on, on my, on sideprojectstack.com backslash corporate to freedom. You can follow along my journey. And I talk about, there's basically seven income streams that I basically looked at and I prioritized them based off of the likelihood that I could do them. And then I tried to validate them. So one of them was sponsorships and what I call no code tool partnerships with the site. So I built up this asset over time where I had 3,300 um, subscribers and users in um, my newsletter, I can monetize that. That's not going to probably fulfill all of my base income level, but that'd be a nice little chunk. Okay. So then how do I get closer to my base level, right? Of For cash flow inflow. And then I, and then um, in a kind of a serendipitous moment in November, I tweeted out like, Hey, I'm open for helping startups just, and I just put it out there. I didn't put out there like, like a, like a solution I put out like, Hey, I'm willing to help. And I had a founder, Pramod of Threado, reach out to me through my DMs and serendipitously we connected, we met, we hit it off with his approach with product and I'm a product manager. So I just gave him, you know, my two cents and he had this strategy for building things, uh, small kind of side product growth tools. And I, um, I said, Hey, well, I could build those with no code. And so I just started doing that. And that for me was validation that I could do that more. And so what I've done and what I'm lining up and what I'm currently doing is launching a studio to help startups grow. And the way we do that is, is using Threado as a case study because we 5X their amount of signups. And so, but I did all of this at nights and weekends. I did all this and I validated it before I quit my job in January. And then in addition to that, I'm also product consulting uh, and helping Jeremy at v, Your V1. He's making, he's, he's founded a tool to help builders build in no code. It's really really impressive tool what how, how he's putting this together he's taking a different approach than like softer or pori and so they're in we're getting ready to get in private beta so a little early right now but very soon we'll be launching and so i kind of had those three things and then i listed out several other things like being could become a bubble instructor bubble had reached out to me to develop in bubble and i so i listed out those those as like fallbacks and what i found is that i'm just way too overwhelmed i don't have enough time to pursue seven things, right? And the reason why seven, I think is significant is because one, that's all the things I could think of. Two, I'm not trying to be a millionaire. I'm trying to live a life of freedom and, and do things that I love to do. But millionaires generally have seven different streams of income. So I kind of knew that in the back of my mind. And I was like, oh, you know, maybe that's a good number to base it off. The problem is, is that I just don't have enough time. So what I'm doing now is I'm trying to focus on the, the and just do three and really kind of pursue those. And so that's, and so that's my biggest, I think, kind of advice would be like, don't quit your job and then figure it out. Like tr validate things and can you get someone to pay you money for some type of product or service? And then what's the likelihood that you can grow it? And then, and then I highly recommend saving up some time and money so that you don't feel the pressure of like my bank, I got to earn this much or my bank account's going to be zero. And what is the breakdown between how much of your revenue comes through some of these consulting type gigs versus how much comes through partnerships? Yeah, great question. So I, I, um, I'm pretty sure I included this in the blog, about 80% of it's coming from the product consulting, product 
building, I'm doing actual product things for those two startups I mentioned. Then I'm also doing building for them, specifically Threado. I'm not doing any building for your V1. I'm doing more like product for your V1. So that's 80%. And so the focus is, is then, can I use that to then grow into the 20%, which is spend more time on sponsorships as well as the studio and, and getting those services up and going. Got it. And as you're thinking about where you're, where where it's best for you to focus your energy, have you thought about going all in on a single platform like Bubble versus building a studio that just picks the best tool for the job? Um, the reason I ask is I've spoken to other web agencies and freelancers before, and I've received a wide variety of responses. The latest one that I spoke to was actually a web agency that focused on building using Bubble, but then customized mm -hmm. the solution. And they were more looking to build for startups that had that had already seen a fair share of success, maybe with their first hundred users, first thousand mm -hmm. users, but then wanted to build a product that could scale. So mm -hmm. their their platform of choice was Bubble for that reason. But that's all they did was Bubble apps using for, for startup founders that didn't want to spend the time on it. What are your thoughts about diversification and maintaining sort of a platform agnostic approach versus going all in on something? Yeah, great question. So definitely Bubble is preferred product, but sometimes it's for, depending on the solution, it's over-engineered. And so Bubble is a phenomenal product and I plan on using that and am using that for definitely a lot of my solutions. And I'm not the best Bubble developer, but I've built my own CRUD app with LillianSideProject.com is an app that I've built in Bubble and has login and, and it has user profiles and all that stuff. So, but I'm not like the best Bubble guy on no code. So what I'm doing is I'm to make up for that weakness is I'm partnering with other folks who are, and I'm working with them as, 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 as a kind of contractor as need basis. And the reason why I believe in the agnostic versus the specific approach is one of my favorite videos of all time is a two minute video about customer experience from Steve Jobs. And I'm not a Steve Jobs, like, you know, Apple boy, fanboy or anything like that, but you know, the, the guy like really obviously understood how to make a product. And there's reasons to be learned from that. And one of the things and to summarize the video is he's up, right, this is right like the late 90s when he's coming back to Apple and he's getting hammered by Apple employees because some are kind of skeptical of him coming back after he just kind of crashed and burned and got fired from the company and rightfully so. And he's basically going to be slashing a lot of the products. And one of the developers was like, you know, what are we going to do for this amazing product? And the problem was is the product didn't have like customers and just had trouble growing it. And what Steve Jobs said is that, you got to start with, instead of like build something really cool and a really neat technology and then go find a customer, you need to start with the customer experience or problem and then work backwards into the technology. And so it's always start with, you know, like when I, I met with a startup founder today and we're going to collaborate. And so we learn about his product. Okay. What does the product do? What are the problems I have? And then work backwards from there. And, and, and a lot of times that may be bubble. And sometimes that might be something else. Like for example, with Threado, we just launched Serendipity Bot on Monday, or to, actually that was last week. <laughs> last Monday, we launched Serendipity Bot on Product Hunt. And what that is, it's a matchmaking bot. So it's a matchmaking bot for communities. And so I built it with no code. I use Airtable, Zapier, as well as in Slack and Gmail, connect with Airtable automations. And I op we open sourced it. So you can go get it today and you can go steal it and use it for whatever you want. And we just wanted, we use this as a way to help communities. And so if we would have built this in bubble, it would have been over-engineered in bubble. It would have taken a longer time. 
So it's all about like, it's great. Maybe if you're just focused in what this other agency you talked about, like building the actual MVP or scalable MVP, right? you know, you've, you've already gone zero to one. Now you're ready to go to one to N of a startup and build that platform. Bubble's probably going to be your main thing, but maybe you just want to experiment with your startup, right? With like, there's something you want to test and validate. What's the easiest way to do that? And that's why I launched and built Side Project Stack and became a number one product of the day. There's a tool on there called Get Stacked, and it tells you what are the tools you should use because a lot of times, what the, the number one mistake that I see people do is overbuilding. And what they do is they say, I need to start with Bubble, and because that's going to be the most scalable solution because that'll that's going to help me for my first 100 users, which is true. They also help help me for my one millionth user, which is true. Right. And so the problem is, is that the learning curve for learning bubble is much greater. And so it could take you 60, 90 days before you build this out and be proficient. The problem is that's already taking too much time, especially if you're doing it as a side project. You need to validate first because I promise you, no matter what you're doing, there's going to be assumptions and some of those assumptions are going to be wrong. And so it's better. What's going to kill you isn't that you have to rebuild. The, what's going to kill you is if you don't validate it or get actual customers, right? And so the Get Stack, the tool, there's a free tool to use. It helps take like, hey, what's essentially connects the dots for you? What are like the lowest learning curve tools that could help me build my thing that I could then validate in less than 30 days, really? That's kind of like the key is, is kind of, that's kind of like the North Star. And if you can't do it within 30 days, well, then you need to make your, your how can you, break that down even more to make it a smaller, a smaller product or feature or something like that. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think the Steve Jobs quote that you were referencing was, I think he said something along the lines of, you got to start with the customer experience and work yep. backwards to the technology. Exactly. You exactly. cannot start with the technology and then figure out, you know, how you're going to sell it. Uh, that's to perfect. Customers. You got it. You got it. Yep. And, and I think that's that's so important uh, for people to keep in mind. I, I took a while to come around to this idea of a portfolio of small bets because the the idea is not about, you know, what 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 are these products that I'm creating? It's about basically building a curriculum for yourself to get better and validating ideas and crossing things off the list. And once you see initial traction for one of those ideas, you just double down and then start figuring out how to scale that product and, and maybe build that. There's two things there that I really want to comment on that I think are so important that it might be helpful that I wish I would have known five years ago. And that is no code actually makes things worse for what that Steve Jobs quote, because now it's even easier to build, like you could build an Airbnb clone tomorrow right? That's not hard. And so now actually it's like even more tempting because before that'd be really audacious and take a lot of time to build. So it's actually become even more paramount to learn product management, validation and building simple and small, because now you could build something. It could be a good idea, but do you have the distribution pipes hooked up to it to get enough people that might be interested? And you could get a false negative to say, oh, you know, nobody thought this was interesting. Well, and actually you just have really small distribution. Like it took me over two years to get a Twitter following of 5,000 and 3,300 in my newsletter. Now I have a, a big enough muscle where if I put something out there, I can really evaluate to see do people think it's interesting or not because I have enough people who, who might actually see it and respond. And the second thing is the portfolio of small bets. And I love Daniel Vassello and I think he's genius. Um, and he does, he's a, he's a elite maker, obviously, and just brilliant. The part that I, that I, that I wrote about, and because I, I wrote in the Lean Side Project and I, I launched it a year ago, it's still in pre-order, but it's ready for anybody if you still want to use it, is 
it's not good enough to just build a portfolio of small bets. You need to build a portfolio of compounding small bets. And the reason for that is I see a lot of makers, they build all of these things that are randomly not related to each other because they have all these different ideas. Yep. You need to make sure, in my opinion, to increase your odds of success because your first thing that you make may not be successful. And, if, and if, especially if you're making something for the first time, you think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And so then you become extremely deflated when you don't actually get users or customers, right? Or maybe you get users or customers, but it's a handful. And you're like, well, why, why did this take off? And the, the thing, the theory and what I noticed behind compounding small bets is I really studied guys like Peter Levels. And I studied guys who have built these massive businesses and, and things. I said, well, what are they doing that's different? And he launched several different products, but they all served the same customer segment base in some way or form. Not exactly, but they're tangentially related. And so what happens is, as, as you see where I'm going with this, as you're building it, it may flop. It doesn't even matter because at best case, it takes off. At worst case, you've grown your audience and you've at least built up now more of a following and more people to, for your next thing. And so that way it's a win-win situation. And, and as long as you don't give up, you'll be okay. And there's a specific strategy for figuring out how to do that. And I write about that and, and, and try to tweet about that as well. That's amazing. I, I think that's such a valuable nugget to leave behind with people is not just focus on a portfolio of small bets, but make sure that your bets are compounding. Before we before we end today, I want to make sure that people get a sense for, you know, how you spend your time. Because with freelancing, obviously the building part, the consulting part is the fun part of it. The commercial aspects of it, you know, taking meetings prior to actually landing that business might get time consuming. So how much of your time is spent prospecting versus actually doing the work on the consulting side? And then how much time do you still spend on side project stack? Yeah, absolutely. Man, you read, read my mind. So like I was going through my prioritization list. And so what I've had to do is I've, I literally have a sticky note st right in front of me. And I look at, okay, these are the things that I have to spend my time on first, second, and third. And on that list, fourth is newsletter. And side, and, and side project stack is number three. And the reason for that is because that's how I have to make sure that I'm not cheating myself because I want to work on side project stack and newsletter and grow that. I've wanted to ship out a new edition of newsletter for 10 days now, but I still haven't because I got backlogged with growing and building the studio and, and helping with the consulting and building in no code. And so that's something I don't have a, an answer for. It's, it's something that I struggle with, but what, what I'm trying to do is stay focused on, like I had opportunity to take another product consulting job and she wanted me to start, it was a beautiful startup. I, and I absolutely like love what they're doing in the space. And they wanted me to start this month. And I said, at best I could start in May. And so, you know, she needed somebody now. And so I had to say no to that excuse me, because it doesn't fit for where I want to see myself, you know, three to six months from now, which is like growing the studio. And so, it, and so, you know, working with and helping on the, and the reason why I like Threado works and I, one is because that helped me bridge from corporate to where I am and, and, and we're going to, and I really love the product and it's helped me build that bridge, but because I'm also launching things with no code helps me build towards the studio. So that's how like I've, like had to justify my time. And at the, and, and what I do is I position the things like the, my newsletter side project stack. Like I still need to fix something SEO wise on my side of my website. And it's been broken for three weeks, but I just haven't gotten around to it because I've had to do those other things. And so 
those are the things that I'm hoping to get times on my nights and weekends to be able to, to do those. Thanks for being transparent on that, because I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, there are always going to be things that are going to be vying for your time. And it's up to you to be methodical and, and try to prioritize things the best you can. Michael, I had so much fun talking to you today. I wish you continued success. Uh, obviously, you know, stay in touch and feel free to, you're welcome back on the pod, obviously, anytime. But I'm really looking forward to how the studio shapes up and some of the uh, awesome work that I know that you do is really going help to the, help the space in general and bring more wins for, for makers. So congrats on, on the big jump. Thanks for being on the show. Before we leave, why don't you give people a handoff to where they can learn more about you and if they have any questions and they want to reach you, where do they find you? Yeah, great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to talk about it. I Believe me, I've, I've learned uh, from you and just talking about it. So it's been helpful for me as well. And I hope that sharing my story helps encourage other people. And and I just want to say thank you to you too for encouraging me along my journey. That means a lot, you know, especially when you're you're going about on your own. And so a couple of places that I think might be helpful resources and education is sideprojectstack.com. You can check out, and I teach not just how to build something, but I also cover another part, which is how to launch it and, and grow it. And then, and then also build a compounding portfolio of small bets, which is something I don't see a lot of people out there talking about. And then the second place is on Twitter, Michael J. Novotny. N-O-V-O-T-N-Y is my Twitter handle. I'm constantly just kind of sharing my journey and I would love to connect uh, and help out. Like a big reason why like I've been able to make that jump is because I've actually just had just grown real relationships through Twitter and like just like doing this podcast with you, Irish, like I'm definitely invested in trying to help you as you've helped me. And that's what it's about. And that in it's it's not, you know, a, a Twitter course you know, as sexy as like I buy, you know, a Twitter course to learn how to grow my audience, but it's just the, tr the the hard truth of it that because that takes time and it takes effort. But I, I promise you, like I've made some of the best friends that I've ever had through Twitter and through relationships like this, just by helping each other. And if it, it takes time to do that, but that's a something foundationally that I hope everyone kind of takes away from this is if you just look to see how you can help other people, it may take time, but as long as you're patient, you can absolutely do, you know, making the jump or whatever your, your dreams are. You know, I don't want to sound too grandiose, but, you know, you can definitely do it. That's a small compounding bet as well. So it's perfectly yeah. on brand. Thanks, yeah, Michael. Exactly. It's phenomenal speaking with you today. Great. Thank you so much. All right. That was the show. Thank you for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed it and got a ton out of it. If you did, there are two things you need to do. Number one, make sure you subscribe to the show to get notified when a new no-code story drops. And number two, I want to ask you a favor. Who's the one person you know who would absolutely benefit from hearing this story? Text them right now and send them to mynocodestory.com and reference this episode. Maybe they're an entrepreneur. Maybe they can use this episode to level up at their job. Or maybe they're just someone who loves creating new things. Do it. Subscribe and then send them the text. Make a difference. Thanks again. And I'll see you on the next one.